<laughs> so, all right, first of all, it's great to be back. I, I love you guys. This is like uh, one of my favorite places to be. And um, uh, my wife was talking about positive, proper Jewish speech. And she mentioned the issue of truth and lying. And there's a very big difference in truth and lying in the Torah than what the rest of the outside world really understands. And many people who think they understand what the Torah wants on this is, uh, are many times sorely missing the point. Many religions deal with the issue of lying, but surprisingly enough, they don't, take, they don't relate to the subject in the same way. Quite the opposite is true. For example, there is a major world religion that vehemently holds that the ends absolutely justify the means. No matter how bloody those means are, and no matter how dishonest these means are, and no matter how innocent the victims might be. In fact, this is their guiding principle in dealing with the outside world. The religious literature of this religion states that when dealing with other nations, quote, you should write many treaties that will lure your neighbors into trusting you. Hospitality and graciousness are primary values amongst our, this, the followers of this approach. Yet, many times that graciousness is being used only as a lure or trap, as their doctrines say. These traps are for the unwary. It is, then, a lie, as we're about ready to see very soon. After having written these treaties, what do the, the literature of that religion state? It says you should wait for the most opportune t moment after having written the treaty. Once your non-suspecting neighbor has come to trust you, at which point you should, quote, rip those same treaties, ignore them, for the ends justifies the means. Luring the innocent into a disastrous trap by lying to them is not only tolerable, not merely permissible by this religion, but actually promoted and even dictated by this religion's teachings. There's another major world religion that goes to the opposite extreme. Never tell a lie. Never have false words pass your lips is what this religion outwardly promotes. At first glance, it appears that we're looking at evil versus righteousness, or we're in Texas, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Um, but is that really true? Maybe not. In fact, today we're going to see how actually both approaches are not only imperfect, but actually equally as evil. We will soon see how, yes, even Hashem has been known to lie. It's not even hidden in the text. Any five-year-old can see it in a simple reading of the words, black on white, no commentaries needed. Here it is, as my wife had stated, but we're going to go into a dot more detail. When Avraham and Sarah, at that point we were actually called Avram and Sarai, but we'll just use the regular names. Okay, when Avraham and Sarah were already old, Hashem sent angels to inform Avraham of the coming birth of Yitzchak. The text states in Bereshis 18.10-14. And he said, I will certainly return to you at this season, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. 
and Sarah heard it in the tent, uh, in, in heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Sarah and Avram, Avram and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, "After I am grown old, shall I have rejuvenation? And after all, my husband's old." And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return to you at this season, and Sarah will have a son. End quote. Rashi tells us here that the Torah changed Sarah's words from, And after all, my master is old, to I am old for the sake of, as my wife said, Shalom Bais. What was the difference between Sarah saying that my master is old and Hashem relating that she said that she was old? Sarah was faulting Avraham in what she said. And Hashem purposely not only omitted this faulting, but quoted her as saying something different, that she was faulting herself instead. But before we start digging into why Hashem lied, as Rashi tells us, for the sake of Shalom Bais. Let's just review a few Torah principles so that you will be able to understand better the implications of what it means when Hashem records in His Torah that He lied. Remember what you already learned in Adon Olama's Search for Meaning. Hey, and if you didn't get it, get it. Sales pitch! Okay, anyway. Um, there you learned the lesson from the Zohar and the Midrash, that Hashem looked into his Torah and created the world from and through the Torah. The depth of that statement is discussed at great length in the Don Alam. It is one of the most fundamental beliefs in Judaism. Yet many live their lives partially or completely blinded because they do not yet completely understand the implications of this highly central foundation of our faith. Let's review this belief quickly now in order to better understand why Hashem recorded in His Torah that He lied. Why was it so important for Hashem to make this lie available and noticeable by every person who would ever read His Torah so that it's some type of a foundation of the world that Hashem lied? As was stated, discussed in the Don Alam, the Torah is the complete, perfect, and infinite will of Hashem. Hashem uses His will, not His essence, but His will, to create the world. As the authors of Adonalem stated in another of their compositions, the first blessing of Shema, Hashem not only created in the past through His good, which our rabbis tell us means the Torah, also known as His will, but that He constantly recreates the world every split second through His Torah. In the first lecture that we had over here in the Teve about the 13 principles of faith, we discussed the fact that not even one letter of the Torah can be added or subtracted. Not one letter. It's obvious why this is considered so important and why it has to be a foundation of our faith and a principle of our faith. The Torah is not only not man-made, it's not only divinely authored, it is the infinite will of Hashem from which the world was created, exists at the present, and will continue to be recreated. Changing even one letter of it is not only not truth, but absurd. So, somehow Hashem lying 
has to do with how this world is presently still here. We, the finite, can never understand more than that which is infinite. Nor do we have the ability of correcting that which is infinite. In other words, we've heard of, you know, new testaments or new books, you know, new and improved. The old one was old and lousy. I mean, something was missing, okay? Hashem's infinite will, well, how infinite was it? Infinite will cannot be bastardized, cannot be added to, cannot be subtracted to. And therefore, saying that Hashem lied in his Torah, that is the basis of the of what the, the whole world is standing on. Yeah, one letter, one letter changed, the world goes. So let's take a look. Why is this so? You may think that you're pretty smart. Let's say you have a million gigabytes of memory and a million synapses in your brain. Divide your million by the infinite wisdom and logic of Hashem. One million divided by infinity, infinity equals absolute zero. Absolute zero, not closer to zero. It's no further away from zero than one over uh, infinity. Absolute zero. So no matter how much you think you understand, your knowledge is zero compared to the infinite will of Hashem. If that's so, how could you have the goal to think that you have the ability to add or subtract from the Torah just because you think it needs some new and improved styles? You of a puny imagination, I'm speaking to myself, cannot fathom the bigger picture. Not only that, but all existence depends upon the words and the letters of the Torah including the words in the letters that say that Hashem lied. And they have to be exactly as they are, with no alterations, additions or modifications, reforming or deforming. Saying that any word of the Torah is superfluous or needs some of our words to help it, is, help it along is not only showing disbelief towards the Torah, it's also showing disbelief in the Torah being the infinite will of the Creator of all, in Hashem constantly recreating the world through it. Not only that, but such manhandling of the text of the Torah also shows a lack of understanding that our present existence depends completely upon the constant input of Hashem's infinite perfect will, His Torah, in its exact form. Changing one letter, one aspect of Hashem's lie, that's why we have to know exactly what does it mean that Hashem lied. What exactly is here? Not just that Hashem lied, what did He lie? When did he lie? For what reason did he lie? This is a lesson for us forever. It's not only a lesson, but it's what the world is based on. Changing one letter of the Torah is like saying that the world can continue the same way while the source is corrupted. That's absurd folly. And so the incident of Hashem lying is recorded in the Torah. It's not only a historical piece of information, but more importantly, it is actually part of the building blocks of our present existence. But that's not all that the Torah is. The Torah is not merely the building blocks upon which the world stands. As you learned in Adon Olam, our neshamas, our souls, were not created from the Torah. The world was created from the Torah. The neshamas were not. Rather, they are a part of Hashem from above. As we learned in Bereshis, Hashem, as my wife had said, 
this is the thing about you know people speaking. Hashem breathed His living Spirit into Adam Rishon, the first man. The physical world and the body are and were and are created through the Torah, but the soul is coming directly from Hashem and placed into this Torah-made world. Why? The purpose of creation, as the Derech Hashem states, is for Hashem to bestow good. Our rabbis of the Talmud enlighten us. That any time the Torah uses the word good, tov, there are other words for good, but I'm talking about the word tov, tov, vav, bet, that any time that word is used, it's referring to the infinite Torah. Maybe not on the shot, on the shot dictionary. What? <laughs> Simple level. Simple level, but rather on the deeper level, or drosh level, or maybe on the remez level, or on the so level, down to Zohar. There are four different levels. So at some point, if, if tov is used, good, at one of the four levels of understanding the Torah, then it means Torah. So, what does this mean in our case? The soul is placed in this lowly physical world, which was created via the Torah in order to choose either good or bad, life or death, as the Torah tells us. The Torah is that life, that good, that we are choosing. We can gain closeness to Hashem in this world only through the means through which the world came into being and continues to exist, His Torah. So we can only gain closeness to Hashem through the words of His Torah. And part of those words are that Hashem lied. So if you really want to have a connection to Hashem, you have to come to grasp with what does this lie really mean? So when the Torah tells us that Hashem lied, it is in order to teach us when to lie, when not, how to lie, and how not. By following the way that Hashem did, we're walking in His ways. By following the Torah's principles online, we come to a much greater appreciation of what the Torah truth means. We have a truth definition by the Webster Dictionary. Babes, that ain't the definition of truth. Not always. We arrive at an appreciation that no other world religion understood to its fullest, and half a truth is a complete lie. We don't have to split hairs here in order to understand some small innuendo of a difference between the beliefs of those religions and those of the Torah. When those other religions either lie or speak what they call complete truth and never having a lie past their lips, both of them are actually saying a complete lie, something which is not truth. And instead of gaining closeness to Hashem, are further distancing themselves from Hashem's will and therefore from Hashem. Because the only way they can gain closeness to Hashem is through His will, which is His Torah, which says that He lied. Ein tov el Torah. There is nothing that is called good except for Torah. If we are to try to either to use either of the two previously mentioned ideologies of two main world religions, or any other concept of how to deal with lying, first we have to test it with the litmus test of the Torah. Those ideologies would fail this litmus test with the flying colors of black and blue. So Rashi tells us that Hashem in his Torah altered Sarah's words when telling them over to Abraham so that there would be peace between the two of them. This seems nice, but it also still seems false, like a lie. We know that the Torah commands both 
don't bear false witness in Shemos 20, and as my wife quoted, stay far away from lying. Not just don't lie, stay far away from it. So what's going on? Here the Torah seems to be contradicting itself. It doesn't seem so perfect. Or maybe there's something that we don't yet get such as what is called sheker in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue, a lie. What is false? Testimony. What is falsehood in general? In general. And what is truth? Emes. Let's look at these words, truth and falsehood, in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue. Remember, we're not dealing with English over here. The Holy Tongue is the language in which the Torah is written. Hashem did not write it in English, and this is not a happenstance, not merely historical fact based upon the target audience of the time that, you know, that it was published for. Unlike other languages, Hebrew is the only language that is called holy. Not in fact, there's other languages which holy books are written in, such as the Zohar, they're not written in Hebrew, they're written in not only Aramaic, but Western Babylonian Jewish Aramaic, which is called Lushan Sorsi. Ever heard a word? Sorsi? Sorcerer? The language of impurity. The holiest level of understanding Torah can only, you can only understand light through darkness. But it is not a holy language. It is the opposite. Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, is the holy tongue and the only thing which is called the holy tongue. Not only the meanings of the words, but even the form and placement of the letters in the Aleph base, that's alphabet for you guys, okay, also um, are important in helping us to understand many meanings that are unapparent to the English reader of a translation. Let's start with the word lie, sheker. The three letters are shin, kuf, and resh. They are three letters that make up the word. When looking at these letters, we notice something really strange. The three letters are in an unbroken sequence in their placement in the olive base. Kuf, Resh, and Shin are one after another in one spot. No other letters come between them. They are also all the way at the end of the olive base with just one letter before the end. Now let's look at the structure of the letters themselves. Is there anything about the structure of these letters that stands out that could teach us something? The shin has three heads and three legs that become one combined leg and then come down to a single extremely sharp point and stands on one little point. The kuf has a curve and then stands on the point of one leg. The resh is a curve becoming one leg and stands on the point. Standing on one point of one leg. Well, I know we just have the Olympics right now and have all seen the gymnastics, okay, but unless you're a ballerina or some type of, you know, one of these people who flings around in the air, I'd get in the hospital just by spinning, forget about landing, okay, but, you know, don't try this at home, boys and girls, I get dizzy watching it, okay, forget it, okay, it's very unstable to stand on one point, okay, in fact, it's impossible for the ballerina to stand there for a long time. This is exactly the lesson that the structure of the letters of the word sheker, lie, is trying to convey to us. Lies are unstable. They only have one leg to stand upon. 
But as was just mentioned, it's not only the structure of each of these individual letters that's unstable. Rather, there's an instability in their positioning in the Aleph base itself. All three letters are standing on one point, and they're all in one spot of the Aleph base, meaning that they add no stability to the other letters that the Torah is made out of, as they are unstable themselves, and only in one spot, and not supporting anything else. Not only that, they're not in the middle, even if they're not in the middle like a teeter-totter on one spot, which maybe you could stand there on the equinox or something like that. It's at one end. Meaning that as far as stability or balance are concerned, you could have no worse combination. So think of that ballerina. Here, stand on the toe. Anyway, uh, so think of the ballerina (laughs) on the tip of one toe. If this ballerina were to always have this pointed foot at one spot while putting all the rest of the weight of the body, including the other legs, straight forward, they wouldn't stand for one second. There's no stability. Now let's take a look at the letters of the word emes, truth. As my wife said, the seal of Hashem is emes. The Torah is called Torah emes, the truth. The letters Aleph, Mem, and Tuf, making up the words emes, have each of them two legs that they stand upon. Moreover, each of these letters has one leg with a point, and the other leg has a base to stand on. I'm standing on one tiptoe and one flat foot. Okay? So, but the, um, okay, one second. Okay, this is balance for each letter. But this is, what's more interesting is their positioning in the olive base. The olive is the first letter. The tough is the last letter. And the mem is one of the two middle letters. This is completely evenly spread in which all three letters have two feet plus a board base to rest upon. Truth, and and also they're surrounding all the letters that the Torah is written from. Truth, emes, is not only balanced in its own way, but surrounds and contains the rest of the letters of the Torah. So now let's move on to other examples of lies in the Torah to better understand why Hashem lied and why such lie is called truth and adds balance and stability to the world. The three patriarchs of the Jewish people, great people, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, a bunch of liars. All three of them are recorded as doing just as Hashem did. They lied, big time. Only when we scrutinize the words in their lies do we come to learn more about the depth of what does truth really mean. In Bereshis 12, Avram is forced by famine to go down to Egypt. It's one of the tests. Hashem says, the whole land is yours. Great, a whole land. I can't even get a bagel from it. I mean, you know, and, you know, I got to go down and get forced out of land. That's a different subject. Maybe I'll come back a different time and talk about that. Hint. Okay, uh, <laughs> there, there, before entering the land of Egypt, he sells Sarai, his wife, uh, he tells Sarai, his wife, that, behold, I now know that you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians will see you and will say that you are my wife, they'll kill me and leave you alive. Please, instead, say that you are my sister, so that they will behave well towards me 
because of you, and I will live because of you. One generation later, their son, Yitzchak, also left his area of dwelling and went to the area of Avimelech, the king of the, of the Pelishtim, Philistines. There is described in Bereshis 26, while Yitzchak was living in Gerar, the people of the place asked him about his wife. And he said that she's his sister. For he was fearful that the people of the land would kill him because of his wife, who was beautiful. These lies, although not true according to the definitions of other religions, are quite understandable. You might say that out of the fear of death, people can slip. But that's not what the Torah is telling us. Abraham and Yitzhak knew that they would be the progenitors of the holy people, servants of Hashem. They knew that they had to survive. As prophets, they knew that they had to survive for what the reason of the world's creation was. They were not harming any innocent people with their words, and their words were, words were enabling them to continue to, in their mission of establishing a holy people, stabilizing the world in service to Hashem. Remember, stabilization, important point here. Therefore, that which would lead to the final goal was not only allowed, but Hashem wanted us to understand that such behavior is the foundation of the world. Not all ends justify the means. The forefathers were not allowed to kill innocent people or lure them into traps, but rather they were allowed to use words that seemed to us to be lies. Yet Hashem calls these words Torah's emes, the Torah of truth. Still not satisfied? What about Yaakov? We all know the story. Yitzhak was getting old. He wanted to bless his firstborn, Esau. Yitzhak's wife, Rivka, heard of this. She blew a gasket, but calmly. She knew that her son, Esau, was evil, and therefore she wanted to, the blessing to go to her son, Yaakov. Wasn't it that she wanted? She had a hot tamale that day. It's something of a gut feeling. It was just like she didn't like this guy's face. It had something to do with her own, how do you say teich? Her own little approach. Her own little approach to it? Was there something prophetic going on here that had nothing to do with her, but rather the stability of the world that she was given a mission towards? So she figured out a conniving scheme where Yaakov would dress up as Esau and she would prepare food that tasted like venison and Yaakov would lie by saying that he was Esau and then Yaakov would say that he had fulfilled his father's request of bringing him a good meal and then receive his father's blessing. I count at least four lies here. Other sources count more. Lies and connivances. And all of this was done in order to steal the brachas that were apparently coming to somebody who actually was the firstborn. So what happened to our little principle about not hurting other people? We're stuck. Not yet. But what really should bother you about this particular incident here is that someone else, like I just said, Asa was being harmed for all the future by being cheated out of what seemed to be rightfully his. Maybe not. So why was this allowed? And moreover, how could this become part of the Torah and even one of the foundations upon which the holy people was based? 
First, we have to realize that Rivka was not just acting, as he said, from a gut feeling. She was not an emotional lady with a bad relationship with one of her sons. Who was she? Where'd she come from? Not only was she raised in the same house as the wicked Lavan, her brother, but she was the daughter of Bisuel. And there's a little thing which happened in the Midrash, which does not appear in the text, which nobody who hasn't read the Midrash understands about this quiet, lovely figure, Bisuel. The Midrash informs us that he tried to kill Avraham's servant and sabotaged the formation of the Jewish people by preventing Rivka from marrying Yitzhak. She knew, let's go on that for a minute, by the soul doing that, he was subfusing the ability for there to be a holy people in the world and therefore completely destabilizing the ability for the world to have the Torah and spiritual stability. She knew what evil and conniving words were. They were part of her heritage, dad and brother. But on the other hand, we know that she was a prophetess, a righteous woman, who had, prophetess is not just a tzedekis, a tzedekis, a very righteous person doesn't necessarily become a prophet. A prophet is an extremely higher level, which we don't know, even understand what that really means. So she was a righteous woman who had reached such a level that she heard the word of God. No one ever said that about me. Um, so therefore, we're talking about somebody way above what we know. She knew, not just felt, but knew through prophecy that if Esav would get the bracha, it would only bring evil and instability to the world. On the other hand, if Yaakov would be the recipient of those brachas, then eventually the Torah would be given to the Jewish people, and the will of Hashem would be done. She was given the prophecy. Why? If you have a note, fall down and say, uh, this and this is going to happen. Yeah, fine, let's make chocolate cake. Hello? Why were you given this message? It's not like these messages drop down from Shemayim, from heaven, and it's like, uh, let somebody else deal with it. Therefore, she was being told because she had to do something. So there we have it. The Sower seems to have the same attitude of the ends justifies the means as Lahavdil, the ideology that promotes lying and conniving and luring people in. And justify the means. Let's steal it away from Esau. It seems that the Torah is telling us that we can hurt whomever we want to, so long as the ends are in keeping with our, our ideology. Or maybe not. Maybe there's a wide chasm of difference. As you learned in Adon Olam, a search for meaning, we do not have the experience of prophecy today, and have not had it in the world for 2,500 years. Prophecy is not similar to any euphoric feelings of religious ecstasy that you can imagine. Receiving the word of Hashem means receiving emes, truth, and you have to fulfill it. Rivka did not make up a word or even add a tiny bit of her own ideas into this scenario. She knew from Hashem that for many reasons, the brachas Right, rightfully had to get away from Esau and that Hashem had given her this knowledge in order to invest her with the responsibility and merit of making sure that these brachas got into the correct hands. Hashem could have done, done it himself. Yet, as you know, this world was created in order for us to act. In the Zohar, there are four worlds. Okay? 
four spiritual things are spoken about in Adon Olam, which lead up to the physical existence. Physical existence is called the world of acting. And so Rivka knew that there was an immediate need for her to stop the evil that could occur. Why else was she given the prophecy? She, coming from Basul and Lavan's house, what yes, okay, knew that there are times when conniving, conspiring people need to be dealt with using their own methods. But this can be done only for the purpose of truth, not because I want it to be. But it still seems similar to the ideology that condones lies. Admit it, it does. It still sounds like the ends justify the means. So here's where the 13 principles of faith come in. Again, if you would like to review, see the Nativ site on this subject, which we learned together. There are two talks there. This particular one is in the first talk. Okay? If we think of any word of the Torah, if we think that any word of the Torah is something other than the word of Hashem himself, if it is some type of great story written by a great man named Moses, then we have a problem. And then we would have the same attitude as we have towards those who think that lying is perfectly okay. But when Hashem really gives real prophecy to real prophets and makes these words part of the Torah from which the world is constantly recreated, then we know that there is something in this seeming lie that is truth. Luring innocent people to their destruction is, a, is very different from taking the king of evil who wishes to destroy all good and uh, all stability and using his own methods to trip him up to regain spiritual stability in the world. Going against falsehood is truth in the same way that shooting the murderer who's running after you is a righteous act. Turning the other cheek is not a Torah requirement. It is sometimes falsehood. But rather the Talmud tells us that when a righteous person has an evil murderer coming after him or her, then which translates as when somebody comes to kill you, quickly and strongly get up and kill him first. So now let's take a look at another aspect of truth and falsehood to better understand what it means when it says that Hashem lied and what lesson we are to learn from that lie. You all remember the incident recorded in the Torah about the uprising of Korach and his followers against Moshe and Aaron. At first glance, it looks like they were righteous. I'm talking about Korach. It looks very righteous. They were saying something that we all see as dishonest. Nepotism. They looked at the situation externally and saw that Moshe had taken for himself the position of king. And his brother Aaron and his sons took the petition of spiritual leadership for all generations to come, leaving everybody else with nothing. Korach was not only from the same tribe as Moshe and Aaron, but also from the same family. They were first cousins. Two of his main followers, Dosan and Aviram, were from the tribe of Reuven, the first tribe, firstborn, maybe they should get something and thought that since they were from the firstborn of Yaakov, along with Korach from a prestigious family of Levi, we should also lead the Jewish people. Why should Moshe take all the glory and pass all the remnants onto his brother's descendants, leaving out the rest of the Jewish people? I ask you, do you think they were wrong? If you were there, 
would you have gone against Korach or against Moshe? Maybe had you been there, you would have sided with Korach, Dasan, and Aviram. Doesn't seem like such an easy choice, does it? But what happened to Korach, Dasan, and Aviram? They were swallowed alive by the earth as it opened its mouth and they fell in. According to a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos uh, 5.8, Ethics of the Fathers, this was no earthquake where they slipped into a crevice. Rather, this mouth of the earth was a creation that Hashem actually created at the time of the creation of the world just for this specific situation because the world wouldn't survive without something that would swallow up this type of falsehood. So when he was making birds, bees, and fish, and the mouth of the earth to swallow up this type of lie once. Because we had to learn what is this thing which seems to be truth, which is actually a lie. What was the lesson? Machlokis. Disagreement is the name of the game over here. Korach and his men wished to create cracks in the system, instability, like the structure of the word sheker that we discussed. They wished there to be doubt in the divinity of parts of the Torah. If Moshe was guilty of nepotism, then all the commandments, it's a lot, okay, and words used in the Torah in the name of God regarding the Kohanim as the children of Arm and their mitzvahs was made up by Moshe. Let's go back to the principles of faith. Once a single letter of the Torah is up for scrutiny, then a Pandora's box would have been opened that would never be able to be closed again. The validity of any part of the Torah would have been so up for question that anything could go. Anything would be considered okay. Pretty much the same as the non-Orthodox forms of Judaism believe today. Nothing would be really holy. The Torah would not be considered the Word of God. And the commandments will be considered 613 suggestions written by some guy who is guilty of falsehood through using nepotism and giving it the name of God. Huh. Instability. Sheker at its best. So the downfall of Korach and his followers needed to be so miraculous that there would never again be a doubt as to the validity of the Torah. So miraculous that it needed to be a creation from the beginning of time. A destruction planned by Hashem at the very inception of the world. Before Korach and his cohorts ever came into being. What Korach and his ideas stood for was not the righteousness of going against the evils of nepotism. But rather the creation of cracks that would destroy the veracity of Hashem's words of truth his Torah, in the eyes of his followers. Machlokas against the Torah was a lie that the Torah had to have a solution for. The mouth of the earth had to be included in the acts of creation, for such falsehood could not be allowed to continue. It needed to be swallowed up alive in order to reestablish spiritual stability. It is for this reason that the Talmud in Sanhedrin 110a tells us that Korah's group did not actually die. But rather, for all eternity, they're still alive, shouting out from the depths of the earth, Moshe Enes, Visoraso Enes. Moses is true, and his Torah is true. They are miraculously kept alive as part of the foundations of the world and the depths of the world, shouting out the truth of Torah. 
Torah is the opposite of creating cracks in the belief of Hashem's Torah. This type of machlokis, disagreement, which leads to instability in following Hashem's words, is considered evil, false. Sheker, we're getting closer to a definition of what falsehood is. So now let's spin the clock of history forward a little less than a thousand years. By Judaism, that's nothing. Okay, we arrive at the gap between the destruction of the first temple and the building of the second temple. We're now in Shushan, with Mordechai and Esther, Achashverosh and Haman. The story of Purim. Towards the end of the Megillah, the text states in Esther 9.30 that he, Mordechai, sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, words of Shalom ve'emes, peace and truth. Hmm. Peace and truth. The Megillah wants us to understand that the words of the Megillah that he's sending to all the Jews after their near destruction and their miraculous salvation by Hashem are words of peace and truth. These two words somehow are supposed to be inseparable. Korach stood for a lack, or better put, the opposite of peace. He wanted machlokis. His machlokis was the epitome of pandemonium, chaos, upheaval, tumult, instability. This type of machlokis, when going against Hashem's wishes, is what the Torah calls falsehood, sheker, the opposite of Torah. The events that were the background of the Megillah of Esther were very much the same as those that Korach wished to create. They are what stand behind the, sto the story of the Megillah. We'll learn more about this in tomorrow's talk. That's what it's all about. You better be there. Um, <laughs> it's, tomorrow's talk is going to be called Playing Hide and Go Seek with Hashem. But for now, it's enough to know that at the times of the Megillah of Esther, the Jewish community was split, unstable between those who felt that when in Rome, do as the Romans do, and those like Mordechai, who refused to go with the flow and stood up against falsehood. Mordechai implored his people to trust in Hashem and do what they knew was truth, to honor the Torah and Hashem, even though he's, this might seem to endanger their lives in the enemy land that they were living in. Whereas Korach brought Machlokas, Mordechai brought peace and truth. It was Mordechai who changed Machlokas, divergence, into shalom, peace. He turned falsehood into truth, and hence his Megillah is called words of shalom and emes. Mordechai formed certain actions that literally provoked a war in which the life of every single Jew in the world was endangered. And he did this for the sake of shalom, emes, and peace. Confusing? Yeah. How are truth and shalom the same? And how is creating a war inducive to peace and truth? And how does all this help us to understand better why Hashem lied? The divisiveness in the Jewish community during the times of the Megillah caused a massive rift. But the Purim story ends with there being a united community. As the Megillah concludes, it states that these words were Shalom and Emes, peace and truth. What becomes apparent by the end of the Megillah is that only shalom based upon mitzvah observance is called emes. If the people would have been bound together in the paths of falsehood like Korach had wished, then such a situation would not only not be considered truth, it would also not be considered shalom. So what is shalom? Peace. 
as we learn from Mordechai, who started a war in the name of Shalom. It does not just mean the lack of war, nor does it mean love. The root of the word Shalom is Shalem, completeness. As you learned in Adon Olam, King David gave us a definition of a Jew's purpose in this world, in one sentence. Stay away from evil, accomplished by refraining from doing anything prohibited in the Torah. And do good, follow the positive commandments of the Torah. Request shalom, peace, or completion with your Creator. And then finally, run after it. There is no shalom, no completion with Hashem's will in any path that is not Hashem's path. We are told, Its paths are paths of pleasantness, and all of its paths, sorry, its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all of its paths are peace. Mishle 3. Mordechai was forcing the people into a situation where they would no longer be able to depend upon the monarchy, but only upon Hashem. This is Hashem's path. And therefore he was moving them towards peace, through creating war. The war that he would cause would, only, would be the only way to peace. It is interesting that at the end of the Megillah story, Mordechai institutes a new rabbinic commandment of sending gifts to one another on Purim. The goal is to create shalom between people, and the way towards achieving that goal is that of performing a mitzvah, and therefore he made a new rabbinic commandment. This instills in our mind that there is no shalom without a mitzvah. So Mordechai created Shalom from Pirud, completion from separation, whereas Korach created Pirud from Shalom. The person known most for Shalom is Aaron Kohen in Perkei Avos. Hillel says, be like the students of Aaron. Love Shalom and run after Shalom. Love your fellow creatures and bring them close to the Torah. But when we look into the Midrashim, we see that Aaron was a superior liar. And even well-known for this trait. According to one non-Jewish creed mentioned above, then Aaron is not to be trusted, that we call him the man of peace. What were his lies? We are told in the Midrash that if there was a machlokas between two people who used to be at peace with each other, then Aaron would go over to one of them at an opportune time and tell him, do you know that I was speaking with your friend and you know what he said to me? He feels so badly about the argument and the loss of your friendship. He was crying and he would really like to start the relationship up anew. To which the counterpart would say, really? Then Arm would quickly go over to the other party and say, I know that your friend is going to try to restart the relationship. Just accept it. It's going to be good for you. He feels horrible about what happened. When you see him next, know that he really misses you and he would like to make amends. The two lies together make complete peace. But not only peace, truth. So before we get back to Hashem's lie, let's take a look at one last, yes, it's the last, okay, the last situation that will clinch it all uh, and show you clearly the truth of what others call falsehood and the falsehood of what others call truth. It's a situation that unfortunately occurred not once or twice, but relatively frequently during the Holocaust. 
There were those who did try to save Jews from being slaughtered by the Nazi regime. For example, Motka, who saved Moshe by putting herself into extreme danger time and time again. The story, everyone should read his book, it's unbelievable. We are told by Chazal, the, uh, the rabbis of the Talmud, that those people, such as Matka, have a share in the world to come for all that they did. But there were others who, even though they protected the Jews for a little bit, put themselves out a little bit, when confronted at the door with the question, Do there any Jews here? would respond according to their beliefs, I have never said a lie and I cannot let a lie pass my lips. Yes, there are Jews here. So you tell me, by our present definition of truth and peace, were those people who claim to never say a lie lying, according to the Torah definition of lying, or saying a truth? Were they promoting Torah observance and full compliance with Hashem's will? Or were they bringing destruction and death and furtherance from the Torah and distancing themselves from the world from Shalom and Emes? And like Sheker, bringing instability. At the beginning of this lecture, we learned the difference between the concept of lying between the two major world religions. At that point, it seemed like the difference between good and evil. Although the concept of never telling a lie is not relating to using words to lure innocent people in order to slaughter them, yet the outcome is just the same. Both are just as false according to the infinite wisdom of Hashem, which creates, creates this world. So let's now give a Jewish definition of truth, the definition that Hashem used when speaking to Avraham. Here it is. Truth is upholding and guarding the infinite Torah, which is the will of Hashem, and furthering the stability of its observance, while at the same time making sure that no innocent people get hurt through those words. The lesson is clear. Sheker, falsehood, hasn't got a leg to stand upon and throws the whole world off balance. Whereas Emes, truth, not only has much to stand upon, but balances all the other letters that are literally surrounded by the word truth. Truth creates stability because it is looking out for the well-being of the other through promoting the Torah. Not only did Hashem lie, but he did so in order to teach us how to act. Words of peace and truth, they're the building blocks of our world.